These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Today's guest is Pauline Guillermo. Pauline is a writer, author, and a longtime advocate for disability rights. She is co-founder and former executive director of the International Center for Disability Resources on the Internet, one of the first internationally recognized virtual public policy centers dedicated to promoting opportunities for people with disabilities. She has written numerous papers and blogs and consults on disability right issues and best practice for information communication technology. She's a longtime advocate and writer on issues for health disparities for women of color, diversity, equity, and inclusion for vulnerable populations and communities of color. She serves on a number of boards uh, for the Asian Pacific Islander community-based organizations, and she's also an active volunteer, uh, wetlands and heritage preservation complexes on Oahu. Welcome to Healthcare and Toad, Pauline. I'm happy to join you, Barbara. Well, aloha. I know you're in the island, and uh, I you know, really want to give you a warm welcome to Healthcare Untold. Well, I'm, I'm sending you all the, uh, the warm aloha breezes that I'm staring at right now. I'm, I'm looking out on my lanai and just watching the, I'm, I'm growing some corn here. So I'm looking at it swaying in the breezes. So me and my plants are, are very excited to join you today. Yeah, I heard you uh, planted some banana trees recently. Yeah, we have a little mini grove uh, and, you know, it's sprouted. It's, you know, we had a little cakey. Uh, celebration because um, uh, one of the, the the latest mini grove is what they call um, apple apple bananas mm. and ice cream bananas. Oh yes! So they're really nice and you know there's they they taste like ice cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can imagine, uh-huh. so we can't were pretty wait. excited about that. Yeah, can't wait one day. <laughs> Could I go one back? day? Yes, we want to protect Hawaii though. Um, from this, uh, <laughs> yes, it's, virus. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the governor's encouraging folks to please don't don't fly in and don't fly out. Right, so. right. It's a vulnerable, uh, you know, uh, island, and we want to make sure we protect. It. Exactly. We only our safety net is you know pretty vulnerable right now. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, Pauline, uh, you've been an advocate and an activist for people with disabilities and women and people of color. Uh, your mm-hmm. whole career, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I know today that you're doing fund development for an organ, a disability organization in Oahu. Um, I wanted you to give us more of your background and share your story about your career development um, in these areas of activism and uh, advocacy. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, I've been thinking about this, Barbara, when you reached out. You know, as you were reaching out to me, and you know, I always. In my mind, I always distinguish my my career, um, and I separate them because I I have a long career in corporate America, 
and as a marketing um, and systems person. And then I migrated over to the nonprofit world, and that's where I've been for the last, you know, 20 plus, plus years. But it all stemmed, you know, the way I look at my career, you know, reflect on my career, both careers, is that, you know, I approach it from, you know, who I was, who I am, and where I came, I came from. And so I needed to move away from my cult, you know, comfort zone in the Bay Area uh, to test myself. And so I, I took a position after school, after college in the East Coast, um, specifically New York City and then um, a little west, moving west to New Jersey, but all for the same company. Um, it was a Fortune 500 company. Uh, it was a tele- telecommunications company, and I, I you know, I, I had um, transferred there as 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 my first foray into management, and I quickly realized at that time or at that point that I came. It was like a different world. I was surrounded. My first impression were these Amazons who are much much taller than I am, um, in in the in where I was living. And right. then as I, as I went to the, um, you know, to the building in New York City, where I, I first um, started working, you know, it was all male, um, I would say 82 to 85% male. And they were the ones in charge. And here I was coming in as a kind of a really low level um, uh, female manager. And I realized at that time, that I was just fitting a peg. I was fitting a peg in, in their little chessboard that it clicked off. Um, they didn't call it diversity then, but I, I clicked off female, minority, and um, what, uh, what I came to understand was their ability to say that they're progressive. Um, and I, and, and I, me being myself and, and, and the daughter of um, two strong community organizers and activists, um, I, I decided I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to have that, but I had to learn how to play the game like a male. Um, you know, I learned how to play golf at that time. I was always a soft, I was always a, uh, someone involved in sports. I played softball and, and volleyball as, as a young, you know, from a young age. But I learned how to play golf because that was the, the language um, of negotiating. And I became pretty good at it. And actually, one of my achievements is that after my third year there, I was the only female on the team that on the team made a hole in one. And that's a big deal oh, that is in, a big a male deal. <laughs> in a male-driven, hyper, you know, testosterone um driven, uh, uh, you know, um, arena. And so I, I milked that and, and I used that as a, as a launch pad to say, you know, if you want to attract other women, other, uh, minority women, you need to provide training and access to professional development. And so, you know, I, I helped them create a team of mixed 
you know, this sounds so odd right now, Barbara, but mixed teams of men and women um, who um, work in pods and learn from each other. Um, oftentimes it, 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 it resulted in like relationships and personal relationships and marriage, but the, the, that was not the idea. The idea was the exchange of information. And then the other thing that happened um, as that started to progress and, um, you know, um, senior management started to see that um, this was a way to improve uh, interpersonal relationships. You know, I, I, I urged them to offer um, executive or post-grad, um, uh, post-baccalaureate education. So a number of us um, went into what they call an executive MBA program out of Rutgers uh, University and um, you can either choose Rutgers University or American University out of DC. And what they did is they created a program for um, young executives and those coming up in the ranks to work four full days and take Friday and Saturday and either travel down by train to DC and be part of an MBA program out of American University or Rutgers. And I chose at that time Rutgers. Um, and that opportunity um, exposed me to my first uh, recognition about people who have uh, learning differences, uh, physical differences, and cognitive differences. Because in, in that setting, uh, Rutgers were, at the time was one of the first universities that uh, had programs for um, individuals who were um, uh, physically challenged, uh, had sight impairments, for example. And that really caught my attention. And bringing, it, bringing that experience and the, um, the, I guess, the confidence that, you know, um, to, to present a case to senior management that says, we are a telecommunications company. We are at the time just, just entering um, what they called the World Wide Web at the time, Triple W, which is now really the internet. And um, it actually, one of the, one of the um, engineers out of Bell Labs was very much a part of, you know, that, um, you know, that discovery in, uh, around how to use digital information and how to craft it for the general public. And so it was my first opportunity to say, you know, if you think about sight impaired people, they can't see color. So you're designing uh, an interface that, you know, 10 to 12% of the population, you know, in the US, not to sit, not even, you know, expanding that on a global stage, uh, which is probably 23% or 24%, they can't see the information, they can't navigate, um, it's not, you know, it's um, it's not going to be meaningful to them. And so uh, I started writing and um, researching around um, the ADA and specifically Section 508 of the ADA uh, legal compliance around um, telecommunication uh, information technology or ICT. And so um, I really th that really. Um, inspired me to 
focus, really focus on uh, improving for that segment of the population the ability to improve their lives. And then at the same, at that same, around that same time, you know, my mother fell, fell ill. It was the first time that she had a stroke. So I, you know, um, in concert and in, in uh, conference with my sisters, I, it took me a year to um, negotiate a transfer back to um, California and the Bay Area. And they stuck me right in Silicon Valley as it was starting to percolate, Barbara. Um, wow. And um, I had an opportunity to, at that time, I was starting to do some ergonomics uh, design and um, really delved into how the physical body adapts to the working, you know, working conditions. And so uh, I continued to write and I continued to lecture and um, co-author white papers around um, uh, ergonomics and, um, and biotechnology around ergonomics. And, and then coupled with my interest in uh, you know, real uh, significant and meaningful design of the um, disability resources for those who uh, were, were migrating to use the internet as, as a, a real working tool. Um, I decided that it was time to kind of go off on my own. So that very same, one of the very same people that I worked with in, at, um, at Bell Labs, and he and I um, founded, we co-founded the, um, the International Center for Disability Resources um, that still exists. We found, it was founded in 19, I want to say 1998. Uh, we launched it. We were funded by the World Health Organization, one of the very few kind of out-of-the-box uh -huh. um, internet-driven uh -huh. um, uh, um, funds of it made available for this enterprise and so um it I, as i said it we launched a mm, great i would say great uh, uh i wouldn't say success <laughs> i would say skepticism more than that and so my partner and i at the time my business partner and i said you know we, we've got we've got to bring in other sources, resources, other experts. And so we did the first, first year, first 18 months, we took the funds that were made available to us and we, we um, turned to, you know, we consult, we, we brought in all these consultants to help us uh, design the very first um, fully, uh, uh, was fully integrated model on the internet for the sight impaired, the vision impaired. And so, and that, as I said, that still exists. Wow. Um, so that drive around the disability community um, and, the, you know, understanding the challenges that people with disabilities face within the, you know, the healthcare safety net, uh, specifically Medicare and Medicaid, this allowed us to, um, um, to, use, to, to be used as a, a, as a case in point, um, the work that we were doing. But more and more, Barbara, there was a part of me that said I wanted to go out on my own. And I saw what money can do, what funding could do. And I was never a development um, person that, you know, 
looking at broad broad funding, um, uh, looking at the disabled uh, population, which continues to, you know, uh, their health um, care needs are are not met, not still met to this day are not being met. But you know, all the cultural competency around that and the stigma and misunderstanding around disabilities, that really struck a chord with me again. And so um, I, I've tried to find um, corporate entities that would embrace that. I didn't find it. I, I didn't really convince anyone that there was that need out there when even though the, the statistics um, were uh, you know uh, were unquestioned um, you know with, for example 65 million Americans disabled at that time I think it's grown significantly since um, and you know it, and it, it's a, a movable target because as a disabled person um, um, ages it, their disability becomes even more grave. Uh, and so uh, I realized that in order to make any kind of footprint, I had to move to a not-for-profit. Um, uh, I, I, I had to move to move away from corporate America and really stay in uh, the nonprofit world uh, where, where uh, our center was. Um, that's much harder. The, the monies that are available, ev everyone's trying to tap into those major funders, those corporate foundations, et cetera. Um, you know, government funding for some of the things that we were doing at the time uh, was, were, you know, slim to yeah, almost non existent. Probably didn't even exist yet. Probably yes. Exist yet. Yeah. And, and to, you know, to compare to what's available now, of course, you know, it's like night and day. Right. But um, I've always, you know, and I've always had uh, in, an interest in health and healthcare and the disabled. Uh, going back to when I was in high school, you know, we all had to do service. And, you know, uh, my best friends and I, about a mile or two from where we live, they have a, a home for teenagers who were disabled. Many of them were quadriplegic. Um, some of them had brain injuries from falls when they were infants. And so they lived in this group home and we would go Wednesdays after school and every third Saturday, I believe. And my friends and I, we just, we were always left there in tears, but while we were there, we were just, we were just um, so always so grateful and thankful, you know, for our own health, but also appreciated how difficult, you know, these young you know, kids, our age, our own age, how difficult their lives were and would continue to be. So that stayed with me. And um, it's always driven either at the forefront or the back of my mind that health, health care, health care provision and provisioning were always going to be part of, you know, whatever I did. And so, um, you know, looking at the, the spectrum of organizations that I've I've, I've worked for as a, a director of development. Um, it, there was always a health component or an arts component that uh, worked with um, uh, 
populations where disabilities were a major factor. And those are the, I, to this day, um, you know, um, moving to Hawaii in 2013, I either uh, worked, my work always fell under um, the health side and healthcare, or uh, coupled with that, I always, um, um, myself and my family, my now 15-year-old, always, always, always um, committed to volunteering in the community. And, and, and right now, uh, we, we volunteer, for example, for an organization called uh, IHS, and they deal with uh, individuals fairly young in their early to mid-20s who live with um, substance abuse, uh, alcohol and, and drugs and other um, uh, medications. Um, so whether I'm working in the, in the field or working in, in the field and volunteering, the idea about alone health and that being part of everything that I choose to do um, as a person and how uh, that is um, uh, weaved into, you know, it's kind of woven into my uh, my core from a very, very young age. And it's something that I promote. I try not to be so, uh, people laugh at me because I try not to preach. <laughs> but, right. you know, there's a passion that comes with, there's a, there's a real passion that comes with um interacting with this community, with this pop, the population that falls under, you know, the, um, the sphere and the, um, um, the heading of, of dis the disability or the disabled community. Um, it's, uh, and the, you know, and I'm always aware of the disparities um, that kind of drive or, you know, define the disabled community. You know, they're, Oftentimes people look at them as, or characterize them as being, you know, often unemployed or um, below the poverty level. And, um, and this is very, very true about, you know, um, access. Um, you know, the, the access to higher education still is not there, right. even though technology envelops us. And even though there is the technology to support these individuals or this population, it's still not um, addressed, I feel, um, in a significant way that is going to change people's um, mindsets uh, around um, the ability to offer uh, a place in higher education for this population. So, as a result, you know the the, the kind of the, the yang side of the of this is that you know the, this population then is also defined by um, you know higher levels of, of of health risk factors such as um, you know um, obesity or smoking. Um, they're less physically active. Um, and of course, we're talking about, you know, the prevalence of, um, of this in 
African-American pop, um, uh, population, the Alaska Natives, the First Nations, they were indigenous. Um, those are the populations. And specifically here on this island or these islands um, is the um, Pacific Islander communities. So mm-hmm. it still is a reminder everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. It, and I, but you can only do so much. And so um, kind of to put this on the next level of where I want to go, Barbara, is to be more, to work more in, in larger groups. Kind of, but not, uh, it, oftentimes I find them the, the most effective, to- the, the times when I'm most effective is when uh, organically people come together around an issue like obesity or or like um, physically in, you know uh, not being able to get on the bus right. i don't know if you when you've been here barbara if you've tried to uh, use the uh, the bus system it's actually called the bus right. <laughs> the, like um, there may be one or two <laughs> yes and you know and and to wait in the there are you know the shelters where you can wait for these buses um there are very few yeah. and far between and and by the time the buses come they're full because uh you know everybody needs them uh, yes and so you know these people are left to stand and people are not making room for them to get on the bus the driver is not allowed to step out of his or her seat to help them so i see that and it breaks my heart it really does and i'm like what is wrong what is wrong here? Yeah. So, so the idea is to mobilize, right? Exactly. And so wherever I can, I have made friends with, I worked on a couple of campaigns um, this last election and the elections prior to that, um, and working with candidates who, who got it, who understood that, you know, if you look around, if you pay attention, it's, there are other populations that are of need that don't ask for help because they've been beaten down or been turned away. Um, they know that there are resources, but they either they're not, you know, they're, you know, there's only so much. Uh, there's a greater need than there are resources. Mm-hmm. We live on an island and things don't move as quickly as possible and policy doesn't change quickly enough. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, just sp- spreading the word, making sure people are aware. And, and, and um, now, that, uh, now that I'm in this new position, which has a greater footprint in um, not only on this island, but also two neighboring islands, you know, my hope is that I can do tie this, what I do now or what I want to do now all the way back to when I first began my career um, in New York and in the East Coast and say, hey, you know, there's a, there's a, we can change things. We can be part of this change and use what we have and not always say, well, you know, we don't have the time. We don't have the bodies. We do, we have other bodies. Make these bodies or help these bodies help themselves by helping you, mm-hmm. you know, because they can, they're employable, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely. So that's, Absolutely. that's, that's how I look at it. And, 
and I know I've kind of been, you know, speaking without taking a breath here, Barbara, but, um, you know, I, I still find, you know, 30 years later, um, I still feel passionate, still feel great compassion for a community that, um, I became aware of when I was, you know, in my teens and, um, I carry that. I've tried to at least keep it alive in me, um, to this day. Yeah. And, and, that's, and, and that, that's so important. I'll give you a moment to breathe there, Pauline, but no, but yeah. you, it's been a beautiful conversation from you because I think that, you know, the fact that you started in technology, which, um, you know, when you think about it today, um, mm-hmm. we should have those solutions to so many of the needs of people with disabilities from hearing to seeing. And there are some, right? Um, But, you know, I have a brother with special needs and, um, you know, he was a laborer his whole career. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I found that during the pandemic, he had a really hard time trying to figure out what was really going on and what he really needed to do. And, um, And there wasn't anybody, you know, really helping him with that because he's on his own and we've helped him be as um, independent as possible. And he kind of demands it from us in many ways, but, you know, I just think, um, you know, he could be in a better situation if there was some uh, program that he was involved in that he would want to be involved in. But I found that his gifts of the ability to engage with people um, I've gone to the store with him and people go around the counter. This is pre pandemic to give him a hug. Right. Because he really knows how to, uh, and I found that with him having gone to school with him, we were almost like twins and he mm-hmm. was always in special ed. And I used to watch him, how he would take care of other people with, who were more disabled than him. And so there's oh. this empathy that he has that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't see from a lot of people that people really do pick up from him and just kind of using that strength. Um, he worked in convalescent homes and the older people just loved him, you know? And so there is all these gifts that people have that aren't put to a humanity, uh, improvement. And I just think the technology and the kind of work that you're doing that we could do so much more and they could help so much more um, in the, uh, improvement of our lives. Um, mm-hmm. so I do, you know, I do feel what you're saying and, and it's so important, um, because I, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, the impact of COVID-19 on this population, because, you know, um, I just think when you think about, you know, first of all, what happened in convalescent homes, and these are people, some with disabilities, many, all of them with disabilities right. and some at yes, levels of yes, disabilities, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that congregate living, which has, was totally impacted by, um, by this virus. Um, what are your thoughts about, you know, this recovery from COVID-19 and the impact that we've seen, especially for this population? And, you know, um, mm-hmm. I just think that, you know, you, you do fund development and that's really a backbone to a nonprofit because if they don't have the funding outside of government and other grants, it's hard to run their administrative and their foundational Mm -hmm. service. And so it's so important, but I really kind of feel this COVID-19 has really impacted, particularly the people with uh, disabilities. Well, I, I I feel that, um, you know, I, I try to look at it. Well, to the extent that you can look at COVID, you know, um, 
in a positive way. Um, it, it has really uncovered, uh, a, I, I feel that what it did for, you know, for my awareness is it uncovered major disparities in care. Um, it, it, it also, um, it, it, it created segments, you know, you could really see the segments of who, uh, of, of the population here at least, um, who, who knew how to navigate the system, who understood how to, how to be the first in line. And then it also identified for me, those who were always, always, you know, um, less thought of, um, and, and almost, um, even more, become out of this even more isolated. But the silver lining about all that is there is awareness now that there, you know, the, these small segments of un, I mean, forgotten, forgotten um, communities, they, they, they actually rose to the surface, at least as to identify that these folks are also getting COVID, um, more likely to um, be hospitalized, um, had difficulty getting to a vaccination center uh, or location, and are falling uh, by the wayside or falling through the cracks. And so um, hopefully uh, what's been put in place with, all, with, with some of the funding that we received from the federal government and that trickled down from the state that we cannot go back to pre-COVID days because these people um, were starting to push against the restraints that they had or the physical and the emotional and, uh, you know, the, um, the bureaucracy uh, that held them back. You know, that, at least here, I, I, I read stories, in the, you know, they're always prevalent in the news about what's happening in other parts of the world, but certainly here, People were demanding to take care, take care of my family member. Okay. Look who were dying in, you know, who were the first ones to, to, to pass away during the initial, um, you know, um, fear, fear period were those who were living in those uh, homes, okay. in nursing homes. And that was a time, you know, when I think that one of the reasons that we moved to Hawaii was to take care of our, my, my in-laws. I'm so grateful that, my father-in-law, who was already in a nursing home uh, or a group home um, at, uh, in th at the start of 2019, that he, you know, um, it's, it's hard to say this, but I'm grateful that he didn't live through COVID and the restrictions and lack of access to his family because it would have killed him anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the lessons that we learn, there are enough, there are more and more people um, who are much more aware of what um, COVID exposed about their communities and about their healthcare systems, uh, about FEMA, about all those other uh, agencies that were supposed to help, you know, um, the, the, the larger populations, uh, that there were pukas, there are holes in everything, but the holes either got bigger or... Um, it created more pukas. And, but having said that, uh, I, I do believe that there are those who, those individuals, those groups, those agencies and um, community members 
who are not going to go back in the shadows. Um, those who fight for, um, you know, the, uh, the, the the communities who were ignored or have been ignored all this time, for those young people who didn't, who went to school, you know, without a meal and needed that safety net of school to have a meal, yes. um, you know, people are not, uh, you know, that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are at least people, um, those in the administration, um, the, the DOE and the, you know, DOH here that recognize it, it's not going to work if it's go back to status quo. So that's the silver lining that I see. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, whether they say take advantage of every crisis, right? And that is something, particularly as you you touched upon food and how schools mm-hmm. were, were seen as you look back at those as that sometimes the most nutritious meal that people got was when they were in the schools. In school, right. So schools really stepped up um, in food security of ensuring that families have food during this time period. And, you know, it's great acknowledgement to our schools and uh, and all the hard work they did uh, during this time period. And no, you're absolutely right, you know, and, um, you know, I think it's really important for, community groups and to, you know, to really continue their advocacy and ensuring that their families are safe and that they have the resources that they need. And, you know, I'm really um, looking forward to the next years of this administration as they try to, you know, it's going to be a long road for recovery. Um, You know, when you even think about the islands telling tourists not to come, uh, that's a great impact on their economy, uh, but right. they also can't right. afford uh, the the impact on their humanity uh, and the lives uh, of the islands. And we have to yeah. protect that. We have to protect. Yeah, that. yeah. And 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 you know, be, before you know, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to make a, a point of, bef- you know, before we end our conversation is that, you know, you talked about, you know, what did COVID un- un- uh, reveal? Well, you know. As we, we come out of, you know, these are the dark days, right? When we, as we, as we fully come out of the, you know, the darkness of these past 18 months, we're going to realize at that point, when you take that deep breath, just how much the world, the uh, global stage has, has changed. Uh, it, it, in this, in 18 months, it has changed. Um, you know, a, a, a generation's worth of change has happened, has occurred. Mm-hmm. So it is a time, you know, and I, and I write about this in, in, in the book about, you know, leadership and, you know, and, and world leadership and, and how we can be part of that because we, we're the drivers of the, that leadership, right? That's we either accept or we push them, you know, we, we, you know, everything that happened in, in the past 18 months, even if you go back to, you know, if you want to expand the conversation or the thinking around like George Floyd, the awareness of what we can say and what we should say and what we will not accept any longer, that is a sea change. Um, so <laughs> after, 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 you know, after the shock of everything, I, I gosh, you know, I hope and pr- I pray every day that, you know, we come out of this hole, um, or 
at least um, with strong, uh, a st- strong, strong self direction mm-hmm. about being a world player, a community player, mm-hmm. and not just hide back in our, in the four walls of our homes and, you know, and turn to, on the television again and escape. Exactly. <laughs> so, and also to, you know, to lift and protect others around us. And I think this is something yeah. I really have embraced with COVID is we are a one world. We, we are one world and we mm-hmm. can protect each other. Experienced, you know, um, that multiple times during the, during COVID. I certainly have witnessed it and experienced it on the, but you know, smaller scale. But you know, doesn't that doesn't that just wake you up in the morning? <laughs> doesn't that kind of drive like, okay, I'm gonna get out there. I'm gonna protect myself and my family, and then do what I need to do to protect others. But I'm gonna get up and I'm going to be part of this. And I I think I hear that more often now um, because I've seen people. Uh, I've seen the best in people. Um, loss, loss, just is a game changer, and it that that wakes you up. You know, so everybody's woke at least <laughs> that I know of who who yeah. who has experienced loss. Yeah, is absolutely. You know, um, it yeah, there's a, there's you're part of a community that experienced it, something horrendous and and tragic and so it it changes you yes yes well pauline you know it's been a great conversation with you today i just wondered if you had thank you barbara yeah if you had any last comments for our listening audience um regarding your work and um you know Mm -hmm. i'm giving some and giving us some advice especially you know from a isolated island that's trying to protect itself (laughs) from others well you know the only advice um, the only advice I, I give uh, younger people, and I, I'm surrounded by them because, you know, I have a 15-year-old and, you know, our, our home has been the safety net for a number of these kids as they're coming out of, uh, out of, the, of a summertime. Our, our school, uh, school system begins in, in the first week of August, and so kids were forced to go back to school. There was no such thing as um, remote learning any longer on, uh, uh, for the DOE. And so what I always tell these young kids who come over and take a swim in our pool and is to to remember who you who you are here, you know, and multiply it ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times. This group, so many people on this island and in the world, are waiting for a time that it's safe enough to be and expand these groups. So do your best, you know, learn and educate yourself about this time. And, you know, this is your time, it, you know, at 15 and 16 years old. I always tell them that, that you can make a difference. Because I did when I was, you know, 15 and 16 right. years old, when I was working with, you know, kids who, you know, had really nothing, yeah. no one visiting them, right. very isolated. So um, I, it's just a reminder that nothing, that, no big lessons, just, Remember this time. Remember um, to care for one another, and um, and and mul- help to multiply that. Help to multiply this feeling that you have that you're free to jump in the pool and touch your friend. Right. <laughs> you <know>? Absolutely. 
Well, Pauline Guillermo, it's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today. Um, Thank you, Barbara. My, my pleasure. Absolutely. And aloha from the mainland. Oh, you too. Okay. Thank you so much, Polly. Aloha, Barbara. On this segment of Good News Latinos and X, chili harvest is here in New Mexico. And due to the loss of 50% of the Chile labor force due to COVID-19, the governor of New Mexico invested millions of dollars and announced the Chile Labor Incentive Program. New Mexico will increase the wages for farm workers to $20 an hour to ensure a good Chile harvest. Bravo to the governor and New Mexico for recognizing the value and importance of farm workers by paying them better wages and ensuring a good Chile harvest. This is Barbara Ann Garcia at Good News Latinos and X from Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold.